Hello, Clinical Research Circle. Welcome back to another episode. We've got, again on the show, Lineage Cell Therapeutics CEO, Brian Culley. We interviewed Brian a few months ago. I think it was like six months ago, Brian. So there's been a lot of updates whenever you're dealing with small market cap stocks. You know, six months is a long time. I mean, first of all, you could burn through a lot of cash in six months. And then investors are always curious, hey, what's going on? Any updates? Can we read between the lines? We should add that if there are any forward-looking statements, you know, that's this is not financial advice. I don't know what the legal jargon is, Brian. Maybe you want to say that real quick. Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to. Because we're a public company um, and uh, through the uh, course of this interview, I could make some forward-looking statements, and so folks can learn more about our risk factors through our filings at the SEC.gov. Mm-hmm. And because this is clinical research-themed podcast, not so much investing, but they overlap. We're going to focus a lot more on the science, but we do want to talk about things like earnings and how much cash do you guys have on hand? Are you you know, equipped to do trials, very expensive trials for the next year, maybe two years. So we'll get into some of that stuff. But uh, Brian, for those who haven't seen the previous episode, can you just kind of give a brief summary on LCTX, Lineage Cell Therapeutics? Yeah, of course. So what Lineage Cell Therapeutics does is that we manufacture specific types of cells which are needed by your body to perform functions. Uh, and in particular, the disease, sometimes certain cell types become dysfunctional. So we are manufacturing replacement cells and administering them or transplanting them to the body in order to uh, change the course of, of these diseases or conditions. And I'm sure we'll have an opportunity to get into it, but the three areas of emphasis for us right now in which we're actually conducting clinical trials are one of the leading causes of blindness, uh, spinal cord injuries, and also cancer. So that, that really is our approach. We're a cell therapy company, but it's really important to know we don't use stem cells. We actually make the cell type that your body needs to regain that recovery or, or activity. Yeah, from what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, it's pluripotent cells that you then, you know, in the lab, you guys figure out, okay, we need this type of cell, RPE cells, I think is for the eye, right, for the uh, macular degeneration, and then for the mm-hmm. spinal cord, I don't know, something with insulation, and uh, they have to connect, so you can't, it's not enough to just move your hand, you have to be able to grab a cup, uh, I think I heard you say that once uh, in the past, so pluripotent cells like how how much of a moat have you guys been able to build because pluripotent i mean can't anyone in theory do this too well let's define pluripotent first and then i can i can talk about our intellectual property estate Uh, so pluripotency is the ability for a cell to become any of the other cell types in your body, right? So as you're sitting here talking with me, right, you've got kidney cells and liver cells and bone and hair and brain cells and all of that. So all of those had an origin, right? They started out as something less specific. They were undifferentiated. And these cells called pluripotent stem cells, they harbor within them the ability to become anything if you give them the right instructions. So I like to think of this as like a recipe. 
I can, I can take flour and from flour I can make a cookie or I can make bread. Cookies and bread are different things, but they started, they started similar, right? And so it's the same thing. These pluripotent cells have the ability to become anything. So they are a renewable source of cells. You don't have to uh, obtain new cells every time. You just keep feeding them and they keep dividing. So it's a really inexpensive way to come up with huge numbers of cells, which can then obviously be used to treat disease. And that's important because most conditions require an enormous number of cells. Um, for our blindness uh, work and macular degeneration, we only need 100,000, but there are conditions out there that people are anticipating you need 100 million cells or more. So you have to have some really affordable way to manufacture these specific cell types. Okay, it makes sense. And yep. I guess that's a good segue into the company aspiration to be the Amazon of cell therapy. Um, can you kind of shed some color on that. Somebody was asking for, I'm going to source some questions from the community. So one of the questions was, can you add some color on how realistically investors should be viewing the Amazon of cell therapy? Um, when basically, and I think I know the answer to this, but the number of employees is basically still the same. Expenses have declined over that time. Uh, I, I think people who ask these kind of questions don't really understand clinical research, but do you want to give like some, some color on this? Yeah, maybe I can, maybe I can help out. So, I mean, firstly, declining expenses can also be viewed as a fantastic thing, right? We're, we're being more efficient with our capital. <laughs> you can't win, Brian. You spend too right? much, you spend too little. Investors often want two things, right? Don't dilute, don't raise money, don't dilute me, but make ton of progress really quickly, right? Those those two factors are inherently in conflict, but we'll, we'll set that aside as kind of a, a junior varsity kind of topic. But I, I think with respect to something I, I frequently say, which is we aspire to be um, you know, similar to the Amazon of cell therapy. So what do I mean by that? Well, you know, part of that is, um, uh, part of that is is just trying to make our technology approachable and understandable. And how I use that phrase is that at one time, Amazon only sold books, right? When Amazon went public in 1997, it had about two and a half million volumes. Uh, now it has uh, more than 30 million volumes. And I, I think they probably sell basically everything imaginable. And so that's an analogy to the business that we're running because right now, we can make RPE cells, which are retina cells. We can make oligodendrocytes, which we use for spinal cord injury. And we can make dendritic cells, which can be used for treating cancer. But there are 197 or so other cell types which can be derived from pluripotent stem cells. Mm -hmm. So the, the reason I, I use that is, again, to help people to understand, because most people didn't start it, you know, I started but left early, but I started a PhD program, molecular cellular and developmental biology. It is really easy for me to have a very technical conversation in the biological sciences. But how do I reach people who didn't happen to, you know, have that background? How do I, uh, how do I communicate what we're doing to people who are more of a generalist and, and, you know, just taking a kind of quick view to get a sense for a company. So that's what I, that's what I like to say. Now there is another side of it, which is actually should be, you know, taken literally, which is every cell that has ever existed on every human that has ever existed started as a pluripotent stem cell. So it is actually factually correct that every cell in your body, my body, and every person who ever lived came from a pluripotent cell line. Now you don't always have the recipe, right? I, I cannot, we cannot as an organization today 
manufacture kidney cells. We've never tried, but do kidney cells come from pluripotent cell lines? Absolutely. There's probably a publication sitting out there somewhere right now with a, basically a recipe. And that is one of the areas where we have a large number of patents and even pending applications is developing that recipe, knowing how you need to treat these cells in order to convert them into these different specific cell types. A lot of that methodology is patentable. Um, we have a lot of that. Uh, we have many hundreds of, of issued and pending applications. So uh, that's that's what the Amazon of cell therapy phrase that I that I sometimes use. But you know, with respect to the size of us, is it is it overly ambitious or, or bold? Yeah, sure. I mean, Jeff Bezos used to drive around to the post office and drop off the packages, right? I mean, <laughs> it is it true, right? I mean, yeah. you know, but that was let you know. So look, I've been here for fewer than three years. Uh, I spent the first uh, you know the first one year kind of working on efficiency and focus and everything. So I feel like this company is only in some ways only two years old. So, um, so anyway, I hope that's helpful to, yeah, to I mean, to add that. some, to add some color to that question. And by the way, I really want a lineage cell therapeutics hoodie. Can I get one, uh, <laughs> Brian, please uh, to add some color to this, uh, yeah, add, adding some color. There's a type of organization out there called CROs, contract research organizations. And these are the people who hire the monitors, the regulatory affairs. Yes. The sponsor is supposed to have a few staff. But at the stage that LCTX is at, they're not in sales yet. They're, they're in research mode. So you, you outsource most of this research to vendors. This is, the, this is my answer to, this is my color to this question. Yeah, if you want to, if, if you want to do uh, data management from a clinical trial, sure, you could hire a bunch of people to come in for a very short amount of time and do data management. But it makes far more sense to do a contract with a CRO get access to 100 data managers only for the time period that you need. You know, are they employees? No, but are they working on your program? Yes. So right, I, right. I don't know how often the number of employees tells you very much about a company. Um, but I will say that with respect to manufacturing cells, that is something I feel very strongly should not be thrown over the wall to another organization and you know say, okay, deliver me X in time Y for price Z. Um, we control our own manufacturing because this is a very difficult, it's much more difficult to manufacture a cell than it is to manufacture a, a small molecule. So we think it's very important to own and control your own manufacturing. Um, any recent updates you would like to share with us since the last time you were on, Brian? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we our last quarterly call, um, you know, the data update on our lead program for dry age-related macular degeneration I think was wonderful. Um, we were able to see essentially a continuation. So this is a this is a, an aspect of durability of earlier findings, right? That's one of the questions people say. Oh, okay, I see that you reported X. How long is that going to last? And so we've now reported at least nine months of uh, data on all of the patients in our clinical study. And we've been really happy that we have um, continued to see the kinds of um, benefits with respect to functional improvement, meaning how well people see uh, and how much better they're seeing in their treated eye compared to their untreated eye, as well as anatomical changes. So we're looking not just at how is the, how is the individual seeing, but what's going on? What, what does the wound in the back of the eye look like? Uh, that's a very important, um, that's a very important piece of data. Um, so as far as uh, Operagen is concerned, do you have any anticipated trials uh, coming up? I know we're trying to seek fast track approval. 
uh, with a single phase three trail? Um, or do you think two phase three trails are going to be needed? Um, can you kind of give us some info on that? Yeah, so um, so we're, we're completing, we're in the follow-up phase of a phase 1-2A study. So we will next move, obviously, to a later stage study. Um, the definition, you know, calling it a phase 2B or calling it a phase 3 or, you know, adaptive designs or continuous phase 2, 3s, there's a lot of nuance um, and, and some of this is not well defined. So I tend to try to not give specific details because the specifics will come out of interactions that we have with the FDA. Um, what I can say is that I would like for our next study to be of the size that it can be used as a registrational study. Um, and the reason why I can uh, say that is that the data that we have around arresting GA growth, arresting atrophy, and being able to reverse atrophy, uh, i.e. to be able to identify new retinal tissue that wasn't there before, we're the only company that has ever reported that. And humans can't regrow naturally their retinal tissue, right? So we know that it's our intervention that's leading to these results. So that's very powerful because in the conduct of clinical trials, one of the great challenges is seeing the signal among the noise. So if you think about uh, cancer studies, right? How many people do you have to treat in order to show that you're improving a response rate or a, a survival uh, curve by a small amount? It's often you have to treat a large number of people because the benefit is small, it's very incremental. But in our case, what we have seen in three out of four patients that were treated, call it the right way, is a massive change in the anatomical features of the eye. And the larger the change or the larger the benefit that you have, the easier it is to detect it. So you're able to go and run smaller studies. So I think that in the past, companies that have gone after dry AMD with you know, multi-thousand studies, that's because they're looking, for, they're looking for statistical proof for a small change and they have to run a huge study to get that proof. But I think in our case, because we have such a large change, we should be able to run a significantly smaller study in order to get the same level of evidence and conviction on our data. Mm -hmm. I, now, I, I'm going to add just on top of that, yeah. the FDA will always ask you, right? You don't, a lot of people don't understand how the regulatory side works. The FDA will always refer to their guidance. So if you go to the FDA and ask a question that everyone would like to know, like, can I get approved on a single study, right? It seems like a straightforward question. Investors, even executives sometimes just want to answer that question. The reality is the FDA will say to you, we have guidance. And what you need to show us is evidence in the form of a comparative, you know, controlled, i.e. controlled clinical trial with adequate statistical proof. Sometimes you can do that on a single phase three study. Sometimes you have to do multiple phase three studies. Sometimes you can't do it at all because your drug doesn't work. <laughs> so, um, so it's right. a question that gets asked all the time, but never has an answer until after the study is done and you're able to uh, evaluate the level of proof that you have. And then it's a lot easier to get approved because you, you're able to say, hey, look, this is irrefutable evidence that this therapy works. You should approve us based on this single study. Chris, you were happy. Did you have uh, something to say, to add? Not particularly. I have a couple of dumb questions, but I'll say that at the end if there's time. <laughs> we, okay, we can do that anytime. Um, 
Somebody says, uh, let's see here. Oh, okay. So back to the uh, Opera Gen. It seems like that's the one that's maybe furthest along in the development. Um, do you have any kind of ballpark speculative estimate for how much a dose of it will cost to produce at scale? Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but but that's uh, very different than you know the list price or the patient share of cost, right? So um, one of the wonderful things about uh, using pluripotent cells, right? Allogeneic, those, so these are cells that come from a cell line. They're not coming from the patient. So we don't take a patient's cells, manipulate them and put them back in. That is horrifyingly expensive because it's basically one therapy for one individual. What we have is we have frozen cells, which we can then administer to anyone. So and obviously anyone who meets the criteria has the condition, et cetera, within certain parameters. But the concept of all patients get the same medicine is what's applicable. Now, what's nice about that is that we have incredibly lower costs associated with scaling our cells from a cell line. And what I would like to share with people is if you think you're, if you, you know, if you make a hundred pizzas and then you decide you need to make a hundred thousand pizzas, you need to, you need to buy all of the inputs at scale. You need to buy all of the cheese and pepperoni and everything else all has to be enough to supply a hundred thousand pizzas, right? So the, the cost and the economy of scale isn't as great, but with cells, you, I mean, I'm, I'm simplifying, but you give them a little bit of sugar water, right? And they divide on their own and they make exact replicas, right? Pizzas don't divide into them, you know, two pizzas. So cells can do that. So we right now have the ability to manufacture 5 billion cells in a three liter reactor, which is a very small reactor in terms of pharma's capabilities. So we have a massive, I mean, I was, we were talking to a company not, not too long ago about our cost of manufacturing. And it was quite remarkable. They were stunned because our input costs are so low because the cells know how to divide. They will do that naturally. They want to do that if you give them the energy to do that. And so um, we have a huge advantage using allogeneic technology or off-the-shelf technology that we can drive our costs down. Now, that's totally different from what is a therapy going to cost? What will it cost the payers? What will it cost Medicare, et cetera? Those are very different inputs. Those will be based on value pricing. How much value do we give to the patient and the market? And then what can we charge and, you know, as an as a appropriate uh, uh, exchange for that value? You know, that's a very distant, uh, that's a very distant consideration, but right. you know, I'm not going to reveal any secrets as to, you know, <laughs> how cheap it is for us to do what we do, but we, we can certainly see, you know, very attractive margins in the, in a future date. Yeah. I mean, it would, I, phase three takes a long time for the most part. And you guys are not even sure if there's going to be a phase immediate phase three or phase two, three. Uh, so to think about pricing, I mean, I'm sure you're thinking about it, but to make any announcements about it would be foolish given the fact that technology decreased in cost over time. And by the time phase three is done, price may be totally different than what you said in 2021, you know, in 20, yeah. 2025 may be totally different. Um, okay. Another question, uh, chronic, um, spinal cord injury versus subacute spinal cord injury. Um, can you give us some info on the phase three trial? Can it be done in subacute or chronic and can you go straight to phase three uh, as opposed to just subacute 
Yeah, so um, first I'll just de define sort of chronic versus subacute. So um, chronic, just to be kind of qu quick about it, chronic is someone who was injured a very long time ago, you know, from months to years. Uh, subacute for us is 21 to 42 days, so three to six weeks. So all of the data that we have so far collected in spinal cord injury is in subacute patients, right? Immediate wound, not, not immediate, but a few weeks after, right? So, um, so all of the evidence that we have to support further testing in that patient population is in the subacute phase, and that's our current plan. But I recently announced that uh, in connection with a small clinical study that we're doing to test a new delivery system, that we would be permitted to include chronic patients because the purpose of that delivery system is just to demonstrate that we can deliver the cells to the right location. So does it really matter if a patient was injured five weeks ago or five years ago? Not really, we're testing a needle. So we expect that having chronic patients in that study will help us move faster because there are more of them. They're easier to identify and, um, and they you know, suit the purpose of trying to demonstrate that the system can, can be deployed more, more broadly, which is the purpose of that study. But what's kind of an asymmetric benefit is that if any of these chronic patients for whom nobody expects that they're gonna see a benefit if any of them do have a benefit, right? If some guy who, who couldn't move his hand for five years suddenly can kind of go like that, I mean, that's gonna blow the lid. So it's kind of this really nice setup for us where we're just going in to test this device. We just happen to luck into a situation where we can include chronic patients. And if any of those chronic patients do have a benefit, I would think it would make a lot of sense to pursue that as a separate clinical campaign or incorporate it in some way into an overall clinical campaign. Um, but our base case scenario right now is that we would be running a large uh, controlled clinical trial in spinal cord injury in patients who have more of an acute phase, right, three to six weeks, because that's where the evidence supports making that investment. It's still exploratory to think about chronic patients, but boy, it's exciting to think about chronic patients. Yeah, no, absolutely is. I saw you on an, on another interview where you were talking about a quadriplegic who, you know, completely paralyzed just for him. And it's usually younger males uh, in this situation, but just for him to be able to move his hand a little, right. It's like a huge difference in his quality of life. I mean, that's the difference between independence and being dependent on someone else to like move their wheelchair around like these are huge things people don't understand unless you're in that situation yeah that's very insightful dan because there, there oftentimes are disconnects between sort of a scientific approach and <laughs> let's call it a human approach right and and if you talk to sometimes you can talk to a regulator or a, or a scientist and they'll they'll say well this is how i measure benefit but you know go talk to the kid he or she might have a very different view of what's important to them. Fortunately, the FDA over years has been very open. I, I've been involved in other programs where, you know, they thought something wasn't important and then they learned through, you know, sponsors or, or patient groups that no, actually something is very important to us. And, and all of a sudden that becomes part of a clinical trial that's collected and informative and helps support approval. So yeah, I think, I think spinal cord injury might be one of those areas where what's important to an individual might not always overlap perfectly with what the, the therapeutic developers out there, because the, the people developing new therapies, right, they, they, they want to prove that their drug or their treatment does this one thing because right. they're trying to get it approved. 
well, you know, sometimes the patient might not care about that one thing, right? It might be a biomarker. I don't feel a biomarker. You know, this right. happens with blindness. People talk about blindness. It's, it's great that we can measure anatomy, but really what people want is they want to keep their vision. So it's really kind of an interesting uh, situation in the industry that sometimes the tools that we have and what people want don't always have perfect alignment. It all boils down to storytelling. Speaking of storytelling, so I get questions, you know, I've, each time I'm about to interview someone from a biotech, I crowdsource and I keep getting chronic uh, uh, spinal cord injury and dry eye macular degeneration. I get nothing about cancer, you know, the uh, checkpoint inhibitor. So why is that? And then like, why do you think that is? And then what are we missing? Like, why are people not excited about this as they should be? Well, it, it, as it specifically pertains to lineage, uh, cancer would be the, you know, the third of the children that we are raising right now. And so I think our value is more driven by other areas. Um, you know, I have a view, uh, you know, cancer is an enormous area of opportunities. There's far more competition. Uh, and there's a lot of talk around T cells and more recently NK cells and macrophages and dendritic cells are a smaller area. They get less attention, um, but that's okay. I mean, that's part of the normal scientific process. I consider that opportunity. I mean, you're not gonna see us going in and trying to come up with another checkpoint inhibitor because right. there's been billions developed there. We're not competitive. So we need to maintain an area of exclusivity, right? And go into places where we think cell therapy can be most successful. And I think as we continue to make progress with our lead program, that will create a halo effect on the other programs, right? As we show proof that we can do something successfully, people say, well, I bet this team can do something successfully a second, third, and fourth time. And so that's just sort of a natural growth and evolution of the company, just like Jeff Bezos. He isn't delivering packages anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely right. Brian's all, never shying down from the tough questions. Uh, <laughs> last one, this one's a fun one, and then we can get to Chris's questions. So what's next? It, people want to know what's next. They don't have patience. What's next, Brian? Um, we keep hearing Amazon cell therapy, 200 plus cell types. So what's next? Thymus as an anti-aging therapy, liver, question marks. Uh, stay tuned. <laughs> stay tuned. Stay, <laughs> but there, is, there is a next, right? There is a next. Uh, no, I think if you have a platform like we have, and you have the protections that we have. I kind of glossed over some of the intellectual property, but many, many hundreds of applications and issued patents. Um, not very many companies worked in pluripotent stem cells when they were first discovered, right? And so a company like ours that has been around for 20 years has this massive pioneering patent estate. And so a lot of people are boxed out from certain areas. So now that we have this, this engine and it has started, you know, it was one of the things I'm very proud of. I focus the company down on the ophthalmology program as a proof of concept, proof of principle. And as that continues to be validated and, and we get greater value as an organization, our share price goes in the right direction and, and more of our alliances come in, um, that allows us to continue to feed other things, right? I envision this as being like a flywheel that can throw off additional assets. Right. So there's a really complicated process around how you evaluate what to go into, right? Nothing's more painful than putting tens of millions of dollars into a program and finding out it's not commercially viable, right? 
you got to figure out these things early. So I view this as a hanging, a low hanging fruit thing, right? The eye is not an area where you get a lot of rejection, the spinal cord, there's not a lot of competition. Dendritic cells doesn't have nearly as much attention as T cells. These are nice areas for us to demonstrate success. And then from that, as we get bigger and stronger, it'll allow us to go into more competitive areas or areas that maybe have more risk, but even more reward. Right. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I understand the investors are curious, but you guys have three things for a small market cap. Like that's plenty, plenty, plenty of stuff. Um, Now I'll ask a dumb question. And then Chris says he has one too. So do you have like, does lineage have somebody or a department that just scans PubMed all day looking at like pluripotent, like peer reviewed articles? Like, do you have somebody doing this full time? Uh, well, it's everyone's job, oh, right? Okay. All the senior executives need to need to be abreast of what is happening. Now, you're going to find different areas of expertise, right? So the, the head of business development is going to be looking at and sharing links about deals. The, the head of uh, clinical development is going to be looking at, you know, what is the competition doing and so forth. And obviously, there's overlap on competition with both business development and clinical. Um, I'm an early riser. I'm a little bit of a nerd for this stuff. I like seeing what's going on and sharing links with the team. And, and sometimes I need to explain why it's relevant to us. And sometimes I don't, but you know, we can't follow everything. It's, it's, there's just too much happening, but we do try and stay aware of, of the most relevant uh, events, right? So there's like, like there's a competitor coming up next month with some data in dry AMD. We need to be aware of of that, right? A lot of people are going to ask us whether it's positive data or negative data, which frankly, I don't even care, but it's one of those things that I know I'll get questions. So we need to be attuned to that sort of stuff while still doing what I would think of as our day job of advancing these clinical programs. Right. So their data, the competitor's data really has no bearing on your data and your outcomes. It's completely different. yeah, it's, it's, in, it's in dry age-related macular degeneration. It's in an area that people have been banging away at for a long time. And, and you know, I actually think that's going to work. I don't, I don't know if it'd be that company or some other company, but I think the approach has some benefit. So, but I actually see it as a positive because here's the funny thing, and a lot of people aren't going to kind of intuitively think about this, but you have a huge population, 12 million people with dry age-related macular degeneration in this country. And they none of them have a therapy, right? There's nothing to treat them. So there's this massive education that needs to occur. So if something gets approved that, that has a small benefit, there's probably gonna be an enormous campaign to help educate, to collect these patients, to help inform them about, hey, now there's a therapy. That is like sort of like clearing the land area so that you can come in later for, you know, a second, a second opportunity. So I think priming a market, getting a market conditioned and ready to accept a new therapy, provided that your new therapy has advantages, right? It can, it can do more for the patient or it's less expensive for the patient or it is easier to administrate, uh, administer to the patient, right? As long as you're better in some way it's actually kind of great to have someone go first and establish and validate a commercial market. And then you go and, you know, steal their employees or whatever. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> I like that. Chris, what, uh, did, did you sure. have a question? So, so it really is just a curiosity question. So uh, both Dan and I, we work in clinical research, um, running the studies at site level, but we also have a CRO. We got a lot of um, ophthalmologists, by the way, Brian, we got to talk. All right. I love it. So, <laughs> 
again, just curiosity. So typically uh, when a new therapy is being tested um, to show that it, that it is efficacious, they have a placebo-controlled double-blinded study, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm curious with the dry AMD, do you have two patients in one, right? Because they have two eyeballs, right? So do, can you run this on the same patient? Right, one eye is getting therapy. One eye is that's a good question. Getting placebo. Yeah, you're not giving yourself enough credit. That's an awesome question. That's very insightful. (laughs) It's Um, not dumb at all, Chris. Yeah, you're you're 100 correct. The (laughs) the ultimate standard is double blind, which means neither the patient nor the treating physician knows what they're giving the person. Right, so that's double blind study. Now it's very difficult to do a double blind study when the procedure is a surgical procedure. Right, Mm -hmm. we're not going. I hope that we're not going to be expected to, you know, cut people's eyes when, and then not deliver something to them, right? So it's hard to do a sham control when you have a surgical procedure, even a surgical procedure that's only 30 minutes and the patient's awake. I mean, it's not very invasive. Uh, you know, oftentimes the patient's out of the OR before our own people are out of the OR cleaning up the equipment. So, um, so how do you do it? So uh, one answer is that, yeah, people typically have two eyes. Um, and in a condition like ours, if they, if both eyes have dry AMD, um, you can treat one of those eyes and you can say, all right, let me see if that eye does better. And that's been a lot of the data we've reported, right? 83% of patients treated eyes have been the same or better compared to, I think it's 83% of untreated eyes, which have gotten worse. So we have been able to do that. Now you can't always do that, right? Gene therapy is amazing studies that have been done. If you put a bunch of virus particles into one eye, some of those are going to escape and come across this, I'll call it bridge, and they can get into the other eye and be detected in the other eye. So you can't really do a controlled study with a gene therapy because the treatment can migrate into the other eye, right? So how do you address it? So how I would like to do this, and I, I think we can do this, I would like to enroll a matched controlled population who are just observed, right? So you and Dan come in to the, the same clinic, you get randomized to be treated, and Dan gets randomized to be watched. And so you have very similar stages of disease, the area of atrophy is very comparable, you're similar age and gender, you're, you're kind of matched but we're going to treat one of you and not the other. And what that does is it gives you one line to show here's what happened to this eye. And then here's these people who weren't treated that were baseline similar and that, you know, they're going to look like that. And so that's one way you can address that. And what's nice about this is that you can also switch those groups over, right? After watching them for a year, you might switch the observation group into a treatment group. And now enrolling patients is really easy because you basically pick them up in the first year, you're just kind of, you know, accumulating them before you use them. So again, I'm getting into sort of details of conduct of studies that have not been designed yet. But conceptually, you're exactly right. There's a lot of information available from people who have two eyes uh, by treating one and not the other. But there are also other ways that you can address this in a larger patient population to ensure you are delivering to the FDA the proof and the evidence that your therapy is uh, not some sort of placebo benefit, but actually has benefited the patients who received it. Chris, 
pat yourself on the back. That was excellent. I think the <laughs> audience is going to demand more ratio, Chris to Dan ratio after that question. So excellent job, Chris. Thank you, Brian. I really appreciate it. I appreciate your time. Uh, come back on anytime you have any news to announce. It's hard to keep up with all these. Quite honestly, I don't even know if Chris and I own. I mean, we, we every time we interview a CEO, we buy the stock. So I'm not surprised if we are LCTX shareholders. I have to pull it up and see. I don't even know. But I, I own a few inner shares. Okay, there you go. Full, full disclosure. So anytime, come on. We, we This is the only way we can keep up to date with all this stuff happening. It's a very busy biotech space right now but this is definitely very exciting and early in the process so it's good to expose lineage to a, a wider audience if we can at least to look deeper with this is not financial advice do your own homework dig deeper um and i appreciate it brian thank you very much dan it is my pleasure i'd be happy to come back i i really do i know a lot of ceos don't really care for it, but I really do try and carve time out each week to help reach the audiences that, that maybe don't have access to the same information that these these big institutional funds are able to get. So uh, if you can be a, a conduit and, and we can you know take these questions in and I can answer them, um, it, it doesn't require a lot of work on my part. I, you know, it's just off the cuff and, and I, I enjoy it. It's a kind of a different, it, it, I get, I get different questions. I get questions like Chris just gave. So I'm happy to, <laughs> I'm happy to come back as, as, uh, as, as appropriate and we can, we can do it again. And we'll, we can just, just remember the Kindle's a far better product than the Nook. So Barnes and Noble, brick and mortar. Oh, absolutely. Now, right? <laughs> absolutely. I don't know anyone who has a Nook. Uh, <laughs> excellent brian thank you so much um thank, thank you, you chris as well and thank you everybody for watching and listening and we'll catch you all later bye-bye